Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my interview with Scott Peoples about Edgar Allan Poe, found at the podcast channel Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my continuing conversation with James Miller about NASA unmanned space missions, found at the podcast channel Technology and Space. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Michael J. Taylor, author of Soldiers and Silver, Mobilizing Resources in the Age of Roman Conquest, published December 1st, 2020, by University of Texas Press. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be here. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing a book on this subject? Um, well, by probably a pretty conventional path, this was my uh, PhD dissertation uh, at the University of California, mm-hmm. um, and it, 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 it had been a topic that I'd been interested in a while of, of sort of seeing the extent that you can quantify aspects of ancient history and that uh, that you can then derive interesting conclusions from that quantification. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, I don't just want to do quantification for quantification's sake, but um, the extent that that quantification might explain, say, the trajectory of Roman imperialism uh, appealed to me. Um, so uh, I sort of wrote the first draft of the book, uh, 2013 to 2015, as my UC Berkeley dissertation. Um, and then, of course, many, many years after that, editing it into uh, something that was um, some, somewhat more uh, uh, legible and, and, and readable, um, uh, which, is, which is the book that just came out. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, precisely what time periods do you look at? So I'm focusing on basically the the third and second centuries BC. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the most specific time period would be roughly 270 BC down to uh, 168 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and a that's a period that our sources cover really really well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the historian Polybius starts his history with the First Punic War uh, in 264. Um, and the big chunk of Livy that survives, Livy books 20 run through 45, um, covers uh, the period from 218 BC, the start of the Second Punic War with Hannibal, mm-hmm. down to 168 BC, the end of the Third Macedonian War between Rome and, and Macedonia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have really good coverage for that period, um, in part because you know both our sources and then the people who copied our sources, the monks in a monastery saying, what should I copy today? We're, we're very interested in this sort of big story of Roman imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got the sources to, I think, make the, the project possible. Lots of references to army sizes, uh, uh, military pay, um, amounts of loot and, and, and uh, booty that are taken. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can write, therefore, a, a history of conscription and a history of kind of, of, of fiscal uh, inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course, it's also simply a period that that there's a reason why our sources are interested. That's the moment when Rome goes from being just a Italian power to being a, a Mediterranean power. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, if you're interested in the big, you know, geopolitical arc of ancient Mediterranean history, this is a really um, transformative time that completely changes what the Mediterranean looks like politically. Um, you know, really into the the fourth or fifth centuries AD. Mm-hmm. And I noticed as I was um, starting to look through the beginning of the book, you list some of the kingdoms around there that were rivals 
um, to Rome. Can, can you go over them a little bit? Yeah, so that, that's actually a, a big aspect of the book, is it's not just a Roman history. It, it certainly is interested in the outcome of Rome establishing hegemony over the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of interesting aspect of Roman imperialism is Rome engages with a number of truly ferocious peer rivals. Um, it doesn't just sort of, you know, I mean, it, it does mop up uh, some kind of minor powers or minor tribes, but um, it also faces polities that also have the ability to mobilize resources on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, the book really focuses on the, the what I call the five great powers of the uh, Hellenistic Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, three of those are in the east, um, and those are the big successor dynasties of Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. So Macedonia itself is ruled by a dynasty uh, called the Antigonids, um, who are you know, descendants of, uh, of Antigonus Malpromus, Antigonus the One-Eyed, um, and so they control Macedonia and exert hegemony into Greece. Um, the, probably the biggest of these uh, successor empires are the Seleucids, who they control this huge far-flung state that stretches from uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, all the way uh, to the Hindu Kush. Um, so a vast uh, kind of Near Eastern empire. Um, and then the Ptolemies, uh, uh, the final successor dynasty of the, of the three big ones, um, uh, they control Egypt, which is sort of their this you know, incredibly fertile agricultural land across the, around the Nile, the Nile Delta, um, and then they also control kind of a smattering of territories across the Aegean. So those are the three big kingdoms in the east, mm-hmm. um, and then in the west, the one other big polity that really matters, at least in this big grand uh, geostrategic game, is Carthage. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, one thing I think this book tries to emphasize is just how powerful Carthage is in the third century, late third century mm-hmm. uh, BC. It probably comes the closest to matching Rome in terms of, of military mobilization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course, it, that, that, that fact, I think, matches the basic military narrative we have of this uh, long, terrible, desperate war that Rome and Carthage fight between um, 218 and 201. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the at Roman, those are the five great powers. Um, they're constantly at war with one another. And so my real question is, okay, we know the outcomes of warfare between these powers, and the ultimate outcome is the, the rise of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how how can we take the kind of the variables of conscription and taxation, quantify them best we can using our sources, and see how those uh, those metrics actually you know, uh, correlate to the known outcomes. Um, and so that, that was the kind of the goal of the project. Um, what kind of resource mobil- mobilization uh, actually produces victory and ultimately the victory of Rome? Mm-hmm. Uh, very basic question. With all these powers, they, they had some sort of standing army, right? They didn't just pull farmers in for a campaign, you know, for a few weeks of campaigning and such, right? Um, you know, basically... All of them have some kind of militia system, Mm -hmm. even though they oftentimes will maintain standing forces, either with mercenary garrisons or simply keeping uh, uh, units of of citizen troops on, on duty. Um, but this is the grand age of the of the kind of the the citizen soldier or the settler soldier. So um, uh, uh, the Romans, uh, famous of course, have a huge uh, citizen army um, that is fundamentally an amateur army at this point. So soldiers come off their Roman citizens get conscripted. They come off their farms. 
They serve for a few years. The, the campaign ends, the Legion is disbanded. They go back to their farms. And they may do this many times. It seems that, that probably the average ro- male Roman has to serve 6, 10, 12 years in order to provide the military mobilizations that Rome needs. Um, but um, uh, 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 Carthage um, really relies heavily on uh, on subjects, but lar- largely through, again, just kind of conscription, going in, you know, uh, Iberian tribesmen, say, in Spain, coming in for a campaign season, fighting with Carthage, maybe being sent back um, in the winter and then coming again in the spring. Um, and likewise, in the Hellenistic uh, world, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, the successors of Alexander the Great, um, they, uh, you know, they will maintain against gar- standing garrisons, oftentimes of mercenaries. Mm-hmm. But the core of those uh, k- uh, kingdoms' armies are um, settlers uh, uh, in, in the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, settlers who their ancestors have been given plots of land, uh, probably because they were either veterans of Alexander or, or veterans of the, the great sort of civil war that follows Alexander's death. And those plots of land come with a, a military obligation. You have to go serve for the king when he calls you up. So they also are going off and, and campaigning, coming back from the campaign, going back to their farm. King, king has another campaign. Um, so in, uh, this really is the great age of, of, of conscription of kind of part-time citizen armies or, or, or uh, in, in many ways, I mean, they're, they're very, they can be very experienced, but they're not, uh, the, these states really uh, don't maintain what we might consider regular professional troops, um, other than maybe some of the kingdoms have kind of small cadres of, say, troops in the court or, or, or troops around them. Um, but n- no state has something like, say, the, the Roman army of the imperial period from Augustus onward, a, a, a standing, basically professional army. Um, and that also seems part of the, the, the I think that's actually important from a, a point of view of resource mobilization. You actually can, can, can mobilize way more people um, when you're mobilizing part-timers rather than a very small cadre of, of professionals. Um, so this, this period of conquest is, is really driven by um, uh, part-time, uh, for want of a better word, amateur Soldiers, although again, many of them have have spent a lot of good part of their lives fighting. I'm speaking with Michael J. Taylor, author of Soldiers in Silver. You can find more information about his work on his academia.edu page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, Please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, and my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want new technology, science, space, and space history books, Check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. Now back to the podcast. So when it was time for a campaign for a battle or a war, um, how did these various kingdoms send, how, how did they collect the money they needed and how did they rustle up the, the people to actually show up and fight? Um, well, you know, they all have different strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably know the, the most about Rome, just because um, uh, we our, our sources uh, preserve that. 
Um, but we know that every year there is a levy um, in the city of Rome and uh, citizen soldiers, there may be some kind of pre-selection process of who has to come, but they actually come to Rome, are formed into legions. Uh, uh, there's a kind of selective uh, service process where the representatives, the military tribunes of the different legions actually kind of, you know, make sure that they get the, the same number of kind of, you know, big soldiers and the same number of, uh, you know, one legion doesn't get all the scrawny guys. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's actually an attempt to kind of equalize the quality of soldiers across the legion. Um, and then a uh, call goes out to various Italian communities telling them to send contingents. Um, and those contingents are then uh, arrayed into the, the wings of Italian allies um, that accompany. There's one, you know, one Italian wing for every Legion. So there's a constant cycle of conscription um, uh, in Rome that, that at times can be, of course, very intensive if there's a period of war. Um, but almost every year there is some kind of levy going on in the city, um, either to raise new legions or to raise reinforcements for uh, legions that are already deployed in the provinces. Um, we also know we have a rather interesting uh, inscription from Macedonia um, that uh, probably relates to the second Macedonian war with, with Rome and, and Macedonia, which was, was fought um, from 200 to 197 BC. Um, but it's a, it's a conscription policy, and it basically seems to indicate that um, every household um, uh, in, in Macedonia is liable to provide uh, one soldier to the army. Um, uh, and it has this kind of interesting kind of matrix of ages in terms of, uh, you know, if, if there's multiple men in the household, this is the kind of age range we prefer. But if there isn't, we'll take this guy. Um, and it's basically the, the goal is to, to sort of leave at least one adult with the household um, and ideally to take uh, the, the most kind of able-bodied um, uh, male in the household um, to actually serve in the army. So uh, on one hand, this, this is a, you know, this kind of shows that, hey, there's a big war. Uh, the Second Macedonian War is a very serious threat to the kingdom, uh, and then the Macedonians ultimately lose. But um, they really are going household to household to identify, um, uh, you know, at least one, you know, one male coming off uh, from each, each, uh, each homestead. Um, to serve in the army. Um, so there we also have a, a sense of pretty intensive uh, state level conscription that's being regulated, uh, you know, through these uh, kind of inscribed proclamations. Um, we're, you know, we, we do know that, uh, you know, other, um, uh, other, you know, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are maintaining lists of who has these plots of land, uh, these cleroi. Um, uh, they, they definitely have muster rolls. Communities are responsible for maintaining muster rolls. And so that also allows them to mobilize units when there's a need for, say, a, a mass mobilization. And we, um, uh, we actually have a particularly good literary description when the uh, Ptolemies are trying to put together an army. The, the Seleucids invade in 217 BC because um, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are, are frequently hostile with one another. So it's a big Seleucid invasion. Um, and the Ptolemies basically go through this massive, uh, desperate attempt to put together a huge army. So that involves everything from calling up um, the, the, the clerics, the people who hold these plots. Um, it involves hiring every mercenary they can hire, um, calling in mercenaries who have been sort of just manning distant garrisons and lumping them together into formations. Um, and then it interestingly involves giving weapons and training to native Egyptians um, who... Um, up to this point, native Egyptians probably are used as kind of police forces or paramilitary forces. But in this desperate emergency, they arm and equip them as uh, heavy Macedonian style pikemen. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're I mean, and, and 
this, at least in the short term, works because the, the army successfully repels the uh, Seleucid invasion. But there we actually see this kind of scramble of pulling different uh, pools of manpower, the mercenaries, the clerics, uh, these freshly trained uh, Egyptian pikemen, um, and trying to put together a force that's big enough to, to deal with the military threat. Mm -hmm. So I noticed, and I don't know if I misread it, but uh, again, in, in your book, it mentions how poor Rome was at this time. Did I read that correctly or... Yeah, this is actually, I think, the the one of the kind of surprises I had doing the the research. I mean, I, I went into it, uh, you know, still a kind of graduate student starting my dissertation, and I kind of had a rough hypothesis. Uh, and of course, I was more than willing to see that hypothesis be wrong. But my rough hypothesis was states that had the most money um, would be able to, to 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 fund the largest armies, and so there'd be a pretty pretty uh, you know clear linear or correlation, pretty clear correlation between money, military manpower, and ideally victory. Mm -hmm. um, and what I sort of found was that really doesn't seem to be the case um, in that there is a pretty clear correlation between the biggest mobilization you can field um, and, and victory. Rome, uh, this is unsurprising, but Rome uh, puts the most soldiers in the field of, in, of one at one time and that far, that far exceeds the maximum mobilization that any other polity is, is um, capable of. That's about 200,000 is probably the peak um, uh, Roman deployment during the, the Second Punic War. Um, uh, and that's pretty, that, that correlates pretty well to, to the, the ultimate Roman victory. Um, uh, but Rome probably for much of this time is one of the poorest of all of these states. That is the, the uh, Ptolemies are massively wealthy. Um, uh, we, we have actually a source that suggests the Ptolemies are, are bringing in upwards of 88 uh, million drachmas a year. Um, and that actually seems to correlate also with what we know about the, the productive capacity of, of Egypt. Um, the Seleucids may be bringing in, it's, it's a little rougher, but my, my guess, and, and there's some other scholars who've made similar guesses, is let's say 50 million drachmas. Um, I, I put uh, my, my best estimate for the kind of average Roman uh, uh, fiscal intake or, or, or you know, what they collect in terms of taxes and loot um, and indemnities, um, maybe the average is around 13 million uh, a denarii or so. And a, a denarii and a drachma are basically the, worth the same amount. There's just different coins. Um, so that means the Romans are taking in radically less, even in a, in a period of time during the second century when they are already doing very, very well. Um, uh, than the, the Seleucids or the Ptolemies. Um, and yet they're fielding much, much, much larger armies. The, the, the maximum Roman mobilization is, is easily twice that, the biggest army that the, their biggest total deployment that the Seleucids or the Ptolemies field. Um, and so that means there's this real disconnect between military manpower and, and the amount of tax and, and kind of fiscal exploitation, um, which, which again, I, I thought was surprising um, and that's that's kind of one of the, the the bigger conclusions of the book is that what made the difference in the military outcome, um, you know, why Rome wins and you know say the Ptolemies don't establish a Mediterranean Empire, um, is um, is actually the nature of exploitation. That is, if you focus on exploiting your territory through conscription. Mm -hmm. Um, you're able to raise much larger armies and have much more military success. Those, again, those two things are, are as, as would seem likely, very closely correlated. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the the uh, uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies in particular focus on um, uh, taxation. And actually, we know the most about the Ptolemies. They are a taxation intensive state with an incredibly uh, rigorous bureaucracy. We find all of this papyrus from Egypt that shows just how carefully they are tracking um, the, the just dozens and dozens of different types of taxes that um, mostly the, the peasants of Egypt own. And then they're extracting a huge amount of the agricultural surplus. Um, so uh, the downside is the Ptolemies are famous for being rich and for having a kind of you know, luxurious uh, uh, you know, uh, display as being a key aspect of their kind of royal presentation. Um, but the downside is if you focus on taxation, um, you, you aren't necessarily mobilizing your population for military purposes. Um, and this seems to be less effective when it comes to great power competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that, that kind of actually, I think to me, explains why there's this weird disconnect that the, 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 you know, the, 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 the states that have the two largest mobilizations are Rome and Carthage. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, one thing that surprised me is Carthage is really very close to Rome. It, it easily is raising over 150,000 soldiers during um, several points during the Second Punic War. So not that far behind Rome and, and easily double again with the, with the Ptolemies or the Seleucids are raising. Um, but the Carthaginians too really focus on conscription. When they go into Spain, they, they obviously are looking at the silver in Spain and they are, they are exploiting that. But um, the big thing that they're doing is, uh, is demanding the military services of the people that they're conquering. And this allows them to raise large and large and effective armies and, and almost beat the Romans. Um, so yeah, in, in, in many ways, when it comes to this kind of great power co- competition, at least in the um, you know in the in Iron Age warfare, um, the manpower matters a lot more than the than the money does, um, uh, or at least there's a big disconnect um, between those two factors, which again surprised me from what I would have thought starting out. And what about the uh, types of governments in each of these um, these uh, nations? These you know, politics? I I think that is another very very actually important variable um, because we actually have two fundamental governmental types. Um, we have um, uh, Hellenistic kingdoms um, uh, in the east and we have republics in the west. So both Roman Carthage um, uh, have a, at this point a republican form of government um, uh, and that involves some kind of interplay. We obviously know much more about Rome, but even in Carthage there's an interplay between elected magistrates some kind of aristocratic council um, and popular assemblies. And that, in Rome, those are the those are the voting assemblies, the the Senate, and then the consuls. And, and, and Carthage also has different, but but that same basic set. Um, and I do think that actually makes um, uh, that can make some di- that, you know, a, a lot of difference. Um, uh, one thing that actually um, a, a colleague of mine, James Tan, has noted is republics actually, at least ancient republics tend to, um, they don't actually try to always maximize their revenues. That may be another thing that explains why the the two republics have lower revenues. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you maximize your revenues, you you risk whoever, whichever aristocrat happens to be in charge right now in the the rotating, uh, you know, kind of power sharing arrangement that these republics have, you don't want him to be the guy who's necessarily spending the big influx of money coming in all at once. So republics oftentimes will take steps to, to, to actually turn away revenues that they could otherwise extract. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we do actually see some instances of, of in this uh, with, with, with Rome. They, they actually are, are 
uh, definitely uh, taking exploiting the the territories that they're they're capturing. Um, but for example, um, you know, in 167 uh, BC, they stop taxing uh, their citizens, and that actually means that they're actually uh, foregoing revenues that they could otherwise have. Um, and the Romans are also very reluctant to actually create um, formal provinces, so that they're 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 obtaining hegemonies um, in various places, and yet not necessarily immediately. Um, uh, trying to exploit the resources there. And this most famously happens in Macedonia, which the Romans crush in 168, overthrow the last Macedonian king, but do not annex the province of Macedonia with its very rich silver mines for another 20 years. Um, so that may, be, that may be one factor that we see, that kings want all the money they can because they need to, you know, they need to be the richest, most powerful guy there. They need that money to essentially buy off their um, courtiers um, and and so on. So that, that may be actually one factor that, that monarchies and republics have a different approach to fiscality. Mm-hmm. Um, one other factor, and this is where I actually thought it was kind of useful to, you know, one advantage of doing a couple of quantifiable metrics is it also then forces you to, to cast some light on the, um, the unquantifiable things. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, it, was a little puzzling to me, um, you know, why do the the Romans and the Carthaginians, when they suffer casualties, and casualties was kind of one factor that I considered, um, both sides in the Second Punic War take extraordinary losses. I mean, the Romans famously lose battle after battle between uh, 218 and 216, culminating in the just massacre they suffer at the Battle of Cannae. And yet, despite all of these massive casualties and all of these defeats, they, they keep fighting. And for Carthage, it's actually very much the same. Carthage, by, by the latter part of the war, is also losing battle after battle after battle. And yet they keep fighting, um, in, you know, really right up until the, the bitter end when they've, at the Battle of Zama just proves kind of one battle too, too many. So with the two republics, we see a willingness to absorb massive losses. Um, and we actually don't see that with the Hellenistic kings. They lose one battle, and yeah, they they do suffer oftentimes heavy casualties that are difficult to replace. Um, but you know, you sort of do the, the demographics. You say, well, they still could raise another army. They still have more people. They could still keep keep going. Um, and they, in many instances, don't. Frequently, one battle, when one bad defeat, is enough for a Hellenistic king to come to the table and and negotiate. Mm. Um, and uh, I suspect that some of this has to do with um, uh, the nature of the kind of the, the brittle nature of monarchic legitimacy um, that, that um, you know, particularly for the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, who are essentially descendants of a foreign conqueror. They don't even have the legitimacy. I mean, the, the, the Macedonian kings can at least say, hey, this is our ethnic king. We're Macedonians and he's the Macedonian king of the Macedonians. Seleucids and the and the the Ptolemies are, are interlopers, um, and so with that kind of fragile legitimacy, with kings um, actually pinning a lot of their um, status on their abilities as a general, um, this actually means once they lose a battle, they they tend to want to cut bait very quickly. It's better to just lose the war and be done than risk another defeat and another defeat and another defeat. Um, so. This, again, is kind of where we see, you know, there, there are plenty of times in the wars, say, that, that the Romans fight with the Antigonids or Seleucids or that the, the wars that the, the Seleucids and Ptolemies fight with each other. They, they lose a battle and they still have the men, you know, they still could, could fight again. We, you know, they haven't suffered enough casualties that they're out of people, mm-hmm. um, but they, they oftentimes capitulate. And I think it's for ideological reasons 
related to the you know the, the just kind of brittle ideology of Hellenistic kingship that they're just less secure in their position. Whereas republics, where um, you know because there's just more legitimacy that in part is is uh, the product of the kind of participatory aspects of those republics, are better able to take a defeat and say it's worth us fighting on. Um, so th those are two. I mean, those are those are just a couple of areas where the the very the key variable does seem to be kind of republic versus um, monarchy in this kind of great power system. Um, there are, of course, some big differences between um, uh, the republics. I mean, Carthage, Rome is very reliant on its citizen army. It has the Romans have made a series of decisions, um, really starting in the fourth century, to expand the Roman citizen body. So Rome has a huge citizen body for the at least for a, for a, a city state it, it probably has about a over a million free citizens uh free or or freed citizens um and that translates to about 300 350,000 adult male citizens capable of military service um carthage famously doesn't have a big citizen army um i suspect that this may be because actually the city of carthage isn't that big um and it at most, perhaps only a few thousand Carthaginian troops fight in military emergencies that require them to defend um, the city itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so th that also reflects a decision that the Carthaginians have made, that they, they conquer uh, and control a, a large number of Libyan peoples and, and, and a mysterious group of Libyo-Phoenician peoples who are around Carthage, but have not incorporated them directly into their polity. And that, um, that, that may also explain why Carthage, um, you know, doesn't pull through at the end, that the, 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 the Roman system is, despite plenty of defections by Italian peoples and a, and a few citizen groups during the Second Punic War, um, that big, robust citizen body helps pull them through. Mm -hmm. uh, just to quickly ask about the Hellenistic kingdoms negotiating. Would they generally just give up some money, some land, or just agree not to fight anymore or something like that? Um, yeah, so the Romans uh, imposed, we're, we're pretty well informed of the, the uh, conditions that the Romans impose on, on those states. Um, usually it will involve the payment of an indemnity, um, uh, so a kind of a fine that, you know, for a set number of years, um, the size of that indemnity varies. Um, for Macedonia, after the Second Punic War, it's quite small. Um, they're paying 50 uh, talents a year, um, uh, and a talent is about um, 60 pounds. It's very, that's a very rough uh, 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 approximation, but it's, it's about 60 pounds of, of silver. Um, the Seleucids, after their defeat uh, in a war that ends in 188 BC, the Romans uh, crush the great Seleucid king Antiochus III. Um, they impose a massive indemnity um, that consists of uh, altogether 15,000 talents, um, 3,000 up front, and then uh, 1,000 a year for 12 years. So a huge amount of money. And this actually correlates, it seems, to um, a, a big building program in Rome. That they're, they're, the, the, the censors, the, the, uh, for example, in 184, the censors um, are the Roman uh, officials who uh, provide the lease out the public contracts for building. Um, and coincidentally, in that year, they decide to spend 1,000 talents, which must be just taking the Seleucid indemnity, and they, they, they put in a new sewer system. Um, so, um, uh, uh, yeah, so that's the, the, that's one way that the, the treaty ends. The Romans just say, well, we, you know, we beat you and we want some money and pay up. 
Um, oftentimes, there are also in these treaties uh, limitations the Romans place on um, military uh, uh, mobilization, so banning the use of fleets and elephants. Um, uh, and uh, in some instances, there are um, the, the Romans don't take territory for themselves, but they oftentimes will um, uh, take territory away from the defeated party and give it to allies. So, for example, at the, in the Treaty of Apamea, um, uh, the Seleucids give up all of their holdings in, uh, in Asia Minor, in, in what's now Turkey, um, and a lot of that land goes to Roman allies, either the, the uh, Adelaide dynasty of Pergamon or um, the island of, the, of Rhodes. Hmm. They get huge chunks of, of what had been formerly Seleucid-controlled territory. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so these, I mean, in many of these treaties, the Romans do, uh, you know, in, impose uh, significant burdens and limitations um, uh, and and uh, d- demand money and and also uh, shuffle territory. Um, again, usually they are uninterested in governing it for themselves during this period. Although they do, um, when they take Spain away from Carthage, they do provincialize that Spain. And and actually, previously in the First Punic War, they they. Um, uh, uh, occupy Western um, Sicily. Um, so, in a few instances, there is the, the Roman. Those are those are kind of the, the exceptions. The early provinces the Romans are in, are interested in, um, but uh, in many instances, uh, uh, they simply uh, will will shuffle the territory towards people who have supported them. I'm speaking with Michael J. Taylor, author of Soldiers in Silver. You can find more information about his work on his academia.edu page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, and my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want new technology, science, space, and space history books, check out technologyinspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. Now back to the podcast. Let me ask about um, the uh, personal weapons and also the big war machines, let's say, that, that these militaries used. Um, can you talk about how each of them armed their soldiers and also how they maintained, like, the big stuff, let's say? Yeah, so um, if there is a big kind of Mediterranean split, um, it would be that in the eastern Mediterranean, the dominant um, panoply is uh, uh, essentially a, a pikes, mm-hmm. um, the, the Macedonian-style sarissa, um, which uh, then uh, the, the soldier protects himself with kind of a, a bowl-shaped uh, round shield that's uh, strapped on usually to two and maybe even three points on his arm um, uh, and then wears, uh, you know, probably an array of, of body armor, but uh, we have evidence of, of muscle cuirasses or actually oftentimes linen cuirasses. Uh, the, the Macedonians have a kind of mysterious uh, piece of armor um, that that's roughly translates as an apron, and we're still not quite sure what that is. Um, but the, the basic weapon is a is a huge twenty foot pike, um, the sarissa, and that that really completely uh, defines how a, a Macedonian style soldier fights. 
in the West, um, there has, uh, the, you know, there, there is some Greek style kind of armor that's, that's used in the West, but um, the dominant um, panoply that is used in kind of various permutations by the, the Romans and the Iberians and, and actually a lot of mercenaries in the service of Carthage uh, actually is kind of Celtic. Um, or was initially Celtic. So it was based around a, a, an oval shield with a, a single grip. Um, in, in Rome, this evolves into the scutum, uh, the, the Roman shield, but, but a big kind of body shield um, that you hold from a central grip. Um, uh, and that uh, then the primary kind of weapons are throwing javelins. Uh, the, the Romans use a, a, a weighted uh, shafted javelin called a pilum. So if it goes through a shield, the shaft long iron shaft keeps going and can hit whoever's behind that shield. Um, and uh, uh, the Romans then, the, the, the sword the Romans use is a, is a sword they discover or encounter in Spain, um, but it's, a, it's this sort of Iberian uh, uh, permutation or Iberian evolution of what had been the old uh, Celtic uh, Latin uh, style sword. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, good, the, the Romans call it the Gladius Hispaniensis. It's good for stabbing and slashing and kind of close order combat. Um, but um, the, the, it should be noted that that in the West, kind of soldiers armed with oval shields and kind of s- swords throwing javelins is actually pretty common, both the Romans and also the Celts and Ligurians and, and Celtiberians. And, and, you know, those are groups that the, the Carthaginians are using as their um, foreign troops. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the East, you have these closely packed uh, pike phalanxes with their with their twenty foot um, twenty foot spears. Although in the east you also see, particularly in the Seleucid Empire, which is mobilizing uh, from native troops, you'll actually see a wide array of local regional weapons, fighting styles, um, uh, and sometimes that's where you also get your specialists, um, you know, archers and and uh, from Crete. Um, uh, slingers from uh, from Elam uh, and and so on. So, uh, so sometimes that's an advantage of having a lot of different kind of mar- marital or uh, sorry martial traditions um, uh, in your in your empire is you, you actually have a lot of kind of specialists who can do idiosyncratic things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so those are, those are kind of the the, the basic difference um, uh, in terms of of, of weapons. Were individuals, did they keep these weapons, you know, at home or were they distributed when they collected together for war? So it seems that many, um, if not most, uh, citizen troops um, owned and maintained their own personal weapons mm-hmm. um, and so that they would they would report to duty. Um, that being said, it does seem that the state took measures to make sure that citizens were appropriately armed. So, for example, Polybius, our source for the Roman army, says, uh, you know, he says, you know, citizens are told the, the basic type of armaments that they need to bring. So you have to bring a, a scudum if you're, a, if you're fighting as a Roman uh, heavy infantry. Um, but he also says that if, if the Romans need, if a Roman soldier needs a weapon, um, he can, uh, it's deducted from his pay. Um, so clearly that means that there is uh, an administrative system for providing weapons to Roman soldiers who aren't able to provide one for themselves or have, have had a weapon lost or, or damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a Macedonian, uh, again, inscription that actually uh, specifies a series of fines if soldiers are missing a certain type of weapon. So if they don't have their sword or their shield or their cuirass, um, 
uh, and that, of course, suggests that the state uh, is, is requiring them to provide the weapon, but is, is, has a measure to, to punish them if they, if they don't, don't have a, a very specific type set, or sorry, a very specific weapon. Um, we do also hear, though, that the Macedonian kings stockpile weapons. So supposedly before the Third Macedonian War, the Romans get a very scary report that um, uh, Perseus, the king of Macedonia, has, uh, has a huge stockpile of weapons for thousands of thousands of soldiers. So, um, uh, again, pro- probably there's a kind of interplay that, that the, the, the you know, various states main, you know, produce and maintain some stores of weapons that can be distributed to soldiers. But in many instances, the soldiers are providing their, their own weapons um, uh, as part of their kind of um, uh, militia service. And, uh, and as far as the big, big uh, weapon, you know, fleets, elephants, you know, did the, the kingdoms and republics maintain yeah. those? Yeah, so um, that's one where yes, uh, uh, the 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 shipbuilding seems to be you know something you really have to do on the at the at the state level, um, uh, and uh, the same with war elephants. Uh, we know, for example, the Seleucids have a basically have elephant stables at their kind of garrison city of Apamea, where they they breed war elephants for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we know that the Ptolemies uh, have, uh, you know, they, they seem to actually be kind of aware that they don't have as good of elephants uh, or they don't, their elephant core isn't as sufficient. And so we know that they start undertaking elephant hunts. That is, they actually have whole groups of soldiers and specialist hunters who go down into um, southern Egypt um, and try to capture elephants in the wild to, to be war elephants. And, the, and we have documents related to the pay and provisioning of these, uh, these sort of hunters um, who, are, who are trying to, to, to rustle up an elephant core for the, um, for the Ptolemies. Um, likewise, shipbuilding, uh, yeah, yeah the, a, a big quinquireme uh, warship um, uh, is, uh, is it's a, it's a big um, uh, investment. Um, uh, we uh, know that fleets actually can be constructed relatively quickly. Rome famously uh, builds a huge fleet at the start of the the first Punic War. Um, Although, you know, states are cheap and we know the Romans are also more than happy to routinely dry dock their fleets. And, you know, at the start of new wars, they're pulling out all their ships out of dry dock and, you know, realizing that half of them are all rotten and, and they have to start over. So they, they try to, they try to see if they can get the most out of those, that, that investment in, in, in shipbuilding. Um, But, you know, one, we, we recently, this is one of the most kind of exciting archaeological discoveries, um, although it's at this point the first, uh, the first discovery I think is almost a decade old now, or over a decade old, is that off the coast of Sicily, they've found a number of the, the rams, the bronze rams, uh, the rostra, um, from the Battle of the Aegetes Islands in uh, 241 uh, BC. Um, and one of the inscriptions that these rams have, they're, they're almost all Roman rams with, with Latin inscriptions, but they have the um, the probatio inscription of essentially the the Roman quaestor um, inspecting the rams and saying, you know, I, I approve this ram for for government service. And it actually has the it has a little inscription of who the quaestor was. In a few instances, it was a it was a, a board. Uh, uh, kind of a, an ad hoc board that does this probatio. Um, but this is, you know, it's kind of an administrative aspect of a Roman official approving the, uh, the fulfillment of what had probably been a pretty big government contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so those so things, things like elephants and ships um, are, are, you know, the things that require kind of capital investment. Um, we definitely have, you know, we see that being done uh, very much at the, at the state level. Do we have, 
any idea, any guesses as far as the size of their war budget? You know, like what percentage of their annual revenue went to war functions or maintenance of of this stuff? So for for Rome, um, and you know, I one of the projects of the book was you know the extent that we can kind of reconstruct the the Roman budget, not just what they're spending on war, but what they're spending on temples or sacrifices or festivals. Um, so there is some guesswork involved, um, but they probably at this point in time are spending uh, roughly seventy five percent of all of the income that they're getting on on either legions or fleets. Um, uh, so this is this is the the vast proportion of all state level spending is is military spending. Um, for the other powers, it's a bit of a guess. It's easier to reconstruct their um, their uh, military spending and a little more difficult to reconstruct civilian spending. Um, there is some reason, say, for the Ptolemies, who are really, really rich. I mean, and the Ptolemies are bringing in darn, darn near 90 million drachmas a year. They probably are spending well under half and, and maybe even in years of relatively relative peace, maybe a quarter of that on the size of armed forces that we sort of either have attested or can kind of, you know, for peacetime, sometimes we have to guesstimate, well, it's probably less than what they had in wartime, but they're, they're spending anywhere from, from half to a quarter of that. So that, that means they, they're spending huge amounts of money on, on other things, um, which include things like the library of Alexandria. We don't know how much that costs, but it costs something. Um, the, the, the sort of the museum complex, huge Royal processions, uh, the, the lavishness of, of, of uh, just kind of courtly life um, uh, that, you know, we don't have a great sense of how much that costs other than it costs a lot. Mm. Um, maybe another reason why, why kingship is just more expensive and that the, the, the need for courtly display uh, to, to actually just give money to courtiers uh, either as payments or gifts or bribes um, can't say what it costs, but it seems to cost a tremendous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but again, that's where we we fall short in being able to to quantify some of those things. Um, other than the you know, say the Ptolemies must be spending a huge amount of money on things other than uh, uh, military outlay. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to uh, the res- how you did your research for the book. You mentioned some of your sources. What what else did you use? Um. You know, this is always the problem, I think, with it, it's a it's the problem and the privilege of doing ancient history. Um, on one hand, the, the, there just aren't a lot of sources. And so you you tend to be using a small number of uh, mostly literary sources, although, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, there are some inscriptions that that also provide some information in terms of. Uh, you know, evidence for conscription or, or military regulations or things of that nature. Um, this is actually a period in, in Rome where really inscriptions, uh, the, the, the epigraphic habit of putting up, you know, documents on stone hasn't really started. So we have a lot of these for the, the Hellenistic world. We lack those for the Romans. Um, we do have a lot of papyrus for Egypt, um, say for the Ptolemies, but a lot of that can be very frustratingly local. Um, in that it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, you want you want to know, okay, well, what, you know, what are the Ptolemies bringing in in terms of their taxes? But you get one tax receipt for one estate for you know one adjustment, um, and it's sometimes frustrating to say, you know, how much can I sort of bring, you know, how much can I sort of uh, apply that to the bigger picture? Um, 
So ultimately, I rely very heavily on what are, you know, sources that people have, uh, you know, looked at for a very long time, uh, Polybius's uh, uh, histories. Um, Polybius is a, a Greek, uh, basically actually a prisoner. He's brought to, to Rome uh, uh, after the Third Macedonian War for the, on the basically suspicion that he's not particularly loyal to Rome. Um, and he's lucky in that he befriends a young Roman aristocrat and enjoys a very comfortable captivity where he gets to go to dinner parties and, yeah. and chat with people. And, you know, he's sort of, he's, he, he can't leave, but he's enjoying the life amongst the sort of the, the, the beautiful set in Rome. Yeah. Um, this allows him to write his history with really good informants. I mean, he's being informed by the, the some of the most powerful, well-connected people in the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a very, very important source. Um, also very important is Livy. Um, and Livy, you know, Polybius is writing, you know, almost, uh, you know, after these big wars have ended. I mean, the, the last big war is sort of 168. Um, and, and Polybius is writing one, late 160s, 150s. Um, Livy is writing uh, uh, in, the, in the Augustan age. So he probably starts writing around uh, 28, 27 BC. So he's much further remo- removed from uh, the, the, sort of the events. Um, but Livy is a little more interested in what I'm interested in, and that is raw numbers. He, he probably preserves uh, facts that were, um, if not documents that he's seen. It's actually unclear that Livy does any archival research, but um, uh, probably he's preserving facts that his sources have actually seen, say, inscribed on um, lists of triumphal loot that was par- paraded in triumphs, or um, in some instances, even documents that were preserved, uh, say, uh, you know, in the Roman uh, archives. Um, and so Livy provides a lot of actually kind of quantitative data, data that, that Polybius uh, glosses over. So hmm. Livy tells us how many legions were mobilized in most years. Um, he tells us the kind of reinforcements that are sent to legions. He tells us, again, how much loot is taken for in, in triumphs. And so that information is all really uh, useful, not just in recreating um, the uh, you know, Roman finances and Roman military mobilization, um, but also sometimes in recreating uh, that of Rome's rivals. Sometimes you know, a Roman triumph can be an autopsy of the treasury that the Romans have just busted open and are parading through Rome. So, I, for example, my estimate of, of you know, what can the Macedonian kingdom bring in in terms of, of revenues uh, heavily relies on the fact that we see the Macedonian treasury um, paraded through Rome in, in 168 BC and basically know what was in it. Mm. Um, so, uh, and Livy's therefore very useful because he's much more interested in that kind of, those kinds of numbers uh, uh, routinely uh, than, than Polybius is. Mm. Um, so those are probably my two most important sources. There are other sources that again provide, you know, fill in the gaps of, uh, and there are many gaps. So the lives of Plutarch, uh, the the histories of Appian, um, and and of course, you know, you, uh, other sources aside that just provide little snippets here and and there that are you know Diodorus uh, Siculus or um, uh, uh, you know it, it may not provide the kind of a narrative, but provide little bits and pieces of information. So uh, and then on top of that, you know, uh, some some inscriptions, uh, uh, some bits of papyrus, um, but. Um, I would say overall, and this is actually kind of old fashioned, this book, this book does rest a little more on, on literary sources um, necessarily than on uh, epigraphy or, or papyrus. What part of the research um, was most enjoyable for you? 
You know, I, I definitely think, you know, particularly when uh, as part of a, the dissertation process, you know, the, the opening phase when you're just kind of, you know, you're not necessarily writing yet. You're just trying to, you know, you don't, you don't even know the full contours of the problem mm-hmm. um, can be kind of the most exciting um, uh, in that you're just, you're reading, you're seeing what other people have said. You're, you're, you're realizing sometimes through disappointment, you know, what conclusions have already been made. And then sometimes you get really excited when it seems that there's something that you want, you think you can say that no one else has argued. So, you know, that kind of, you know, that early phase where there's a lot of possibility, um, uh, you know, is certainly fun and it's probably the most kind of exciting part. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, it's obviously also fun as you, you know, uh, uh start to come to your conclusions and start hammering things down and, and, uh, cross your eyes, you know, sorry, cross your T's and dot your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there is a kind of, uh, maybe the most exciting part of the project is that just kind of opening phase where you're just, you know, you're just figuring out what's going on. You have an open mind. You're not wedded to any conclusion. Um, you know, if you discover something new, it won't invalidate the last chapter that you've written. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that may be the most fun part of a, of a, of a project like this. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, a couple of things that surprised you in your research, including, you know, your conclusion, I think. Um, was there anything else that pops to mind that, that really kind of surprised you that you came across? I, I would say that the two things were the things that I kind of mentioned, A, just that disconnect between money and manpower. I, I was a little surprised at how stark it was. Um and I guess the other thing is, yeah, I was I was surprised actually at how um, potent Carthage was. Uh, Carthage is a is an unfortunate state uh, in that it it you know we don't have uh, a, you know a Carthaginian history. Um, the the Romans uh, beat them in in two hundred one and then car- obliterate Carthage off the face of the earth in one forty six B C. Um, and it's it's somewhat tempting, I think, to sort of see Carthage as almost this just kind of casual victim, uh, which in 146 BC it certainly was. Um, but I was surprised at how robust Carthage was. And, and I guess I say, I, 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 looking back, feel like I shouldn't have been. Again, we, we, we know that this is a ferocious war. Um, but just, just thinking about the, the size of Carthaginian military deployments and how probably for the early years of the war, the, the Carthaginians outnumber the Romans in terms of mobilized soldiers. They're not all in Italy. They're not all with Hannibal, but between Africa, Spain, and Italy, uh, you know, probably until around 212, uh, maybe 214, um, the Carthaginians probably have more troops, you know, under arms than, than the Romans do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, part of that is because the, they've wiped out a good, <laughs> several good chunks of the Roman army. Yeah. Um, but it also just suggests that the, you know, Carthage, at least in the late third century, is, uh, you know, is a, is a very uh, robust, um, uh, dangerous rival to Rome um, in a way that, again, I, I probably know implicitly, but, but it became much more stark just sort of literally doing the numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, this probably a bit out, so the scope of your book, but, but what happens to Carthage after it's destroyed or the people who are there? Do they just enter a sort of dark age? Where they're living without a central government, or yeah, so certainly in the the way that Carthage is destroyed, in the sense that it had been surrounded and besieged and and sacked. So some are some of the inhabitants of Carthage are either killed in the sack or are are sold into slavery. Presumably, there are some that are 
able to get out maybe before the final, um, the, the sort of final catastrophic events. Um, and or, or some who never entered the city anyway, just said, you know what, we're going to go off to you know, live with our cousin in, in Libya and, and we'll just we're going to stay away from where the Romans are. Um, we you know, the, the, the myth that the Romans uh, uh, sowed Carthage with salt is not true. <laughs> so this remains very fertile, good agricultural land. Um, but some of it does seem to be, um, if not a wasteland, uh, real, relatively underutilized. Um, and indeed, the Romans, um, uh, they're you know, kind of an attempt to recolonize Carthage under um, Gaius Gracchus. Um, the colonists get there, but the colony is ultimately itself as a as a kind of civic entity is um, nullified um, uh, by the Senate after uh, Gracchus's death or, or murder, more accurately. Um, and then Julius Caesar colonizes Carthage uh, in, in 46 BC. Um, uh, uh, he deliberately recolonizes both Carthage and Corinth, the two cities that the Romans obliterate in 146. A hundred years later, Caesar recolonizes them and they return to being uh, uh, prosperous, uh, uh, wealthy, uh, heavily populated cities. Um, so uh, there is this kind of, um, yeah, hundred year period where, yeah, sure, there, there certainly are people living there, um, but it is definitely not the flourishing, uh, flourishing, wealthy, powerful city that it had been. Mm-hmm. My, 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 um, my fictional mind is thinking of like, you know, lawlessness and, you know, there's no, there's, you know, there's no, since there's no governing body, everyone's just kind of living how they can for this hundred years. But that's obviously just fantasy. It's hard, it's, it, it, it's hard to say the, the, the Romans do um, uh, exert, you know, sort of some provincial control over Africa. Um, but yeah, I, I would not be surprised if it was a bit of a wild west <laughs> during that period. I don't know if we have, we have the sources either way, but, um, there certainly is no, you know, there's no local magistrates chasing down brigands or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would be obviously so many gaps here in, in the record, but what would be the most exciting and possible discovery that someone could make in the future related to this? Oh boy. Um, well, you know, I would be tempted to say if for some reason we found, um, you know, a, a good deal of Polybius is, is fragmentary. In fact, as, as Polybius goes on more and more of it survives in, in fragments. Mm-hmm. So if, if, you know, someone found some of the, the, the later books of Polybius um, and, and they were complete, or if someone found, uh, you know, Livy after book 45, um, also only survives in a kind of cliff notes version. So if someone said, Hey, I found Livy books, you know, 46 through uh, through 56, or we're also missing Livy uh, books 11 through 20. So someone said we found some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, that would certainly be incredibly exciting because that would really fill in big parts of our narrative that's missing. And, you know, would also give us some sense, you know, in one one problem you know I'm, I'm actually very interested in the roman state in the in the earlier third century and in the fourth century um but we're missing livy's narrative between 296 and 218 those 10 books are just the second decade is gone um so if you announce hey we found we've dug up a, a papyrus dump and there's livy's second second decade and we we can tell the story of, of rome in the early third century yeah i'd be pretty excited <laughs> um, um 
You know, that said, I, I guess it's always a kind of nice thing of, uh, you know, when something new does turn up, it's, it's not always what you expect, but it's still cool. I mean, uh, you know, again, the, this goes back to, to 2011, but when they started, you know, turning up these uh, Roman rams uh, from the bottom, I, I, I was definitely not sitting around fantasizing, oh my gosh, what if they just found some Roman naval rams from the, from the <laughs> middle of the third century? I mean, that wasn't on my wish list. Yeah. But once they started turning up, they're extremely cool. I mean, they have these early inscriptions. They talk about, which give us this, you know, fascinating look at Roman administrative procedure they've got um uh, images of of uh of say roman helmets on the front um it's a very interesting kind of state iconography related to military equipment uh, others have images of, of victory um uh, uh so you know they're they're cool and you know they're still being studied and they're still bringing more up mm-hmm. um uh they actually one 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 other thing about them that makes them interesting and weird is they're very small um, Polybius, our literary source, tells us that Roman warships are these huge quinqueremes with, uh, you know, crews of, of 300 rowers and 120 marines. And then we find these Roman ship rams, and you can, you can basically judge the size of the ship from the ram because it fits on the end of the keel. Mm-hmm. And these things are tiny. <laughs> they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're about the, they're probably triremes. Mm-hmm. Um, so either we haven't found the quinquere rams or maybe Polybius or his sources are fudging on how big uh, Roman warships were in the, in the middle of the third century BC. And, mm-hmm. you know, that of course has implications if you're trying to reconstruct how many men need, did you need to man those ships and uh, you know, how much wood did you need to build them? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even right there, you've got it, this new piece of evidence that can tell you a lot of things ranging from inscriptions, administration, uh, uh, iconography, and, and, and even also big kind of quanti- quantitative questions on like, you know, how many, how many trees did you have to cut down to, to build a, to build the fleet that supposedly the Romans launched. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess with this kind of history can be dry, but was there anything you came across that had an emotional impact on you that really struck you, um, either positively or negatively? And I know with the, with this sort of material, you're maybe yeah. not going to have that happen, but I'm just curious if, if maybe you, you know, did. You know, I mean, certainly there are, I mean, aspects of the ancient world where you confront, um, you know, humanity and in, in, in all of its aspects in a way that can be quite stark, whether it's you know, the, the sort of people huddled together at, at Pompeii or Herclanium um, or, um, you know, there's other, other kind of, uh, archaeology that that sort of you know, reveals something uh about kind of people's daily lives I, I would say that this project because yes it is a kind of um you know being you know there's an element of bean counting that obviously can in some ways gloss over um you know the, the really horrific aspects of this period in some ways maybe i'm more cognizant of while I'm interested in these kind of quantitative metrics and I'm, I'm interested in, in how this explains, you know, Roman imperialism. Um, I'm, I'm also under, you know, no, um, you know, no sort of, I'm under no illusion that, um, you know, this isn't a period of, of just horrifying suffering um, that's, that's caused by, you know, the warfare, the, the casualties, the, the displacement, um, and of course, that suffering can easily be kind of um, uh, alighted simply by the fact that we just get these kind of numbers. Yeah, there's you know, 
8,000 dead here or or so many thousand people enslaved. Um, You know, I I guess if there was one thing, you know, there that is that maybe is gives you pause at least, um, you know, one question is, you know, how much are the Romans, uh, you know, how much are slavery bringing into them? How much is that actually bringing, generating revenues for the Roman state? And one kind of general conclusion that I came to is less than you'd think, um, probably because the, the Romans are selling such huge numbers of, of really desperate and kind of damaged people um, when they're liquidating, they, they, they try to sell the slaves very quickly, right? Because if you're the Roman commander, you don't want to feed slaves, you don't want them with your army. So people are enslaved and then they're very quickly sold to, to slave traders who follow the army. Hmm. Um, and one thing is there's a huge Roman slave raid in 167 BC after the Third Macedonian War. They go to Epirus um, and supposedly they enslave 150,000 people in, uh, in one day. So massive enslavement. Hmm. Um, and, you know, one, I was actually trying to answer the relatively dry question of, well, how much money did, did the state make so that I can put together the budget? And this is a really, um, and the, the sources indicate they didn't make all that much. They gave some to the soldiers and the amount they gave to the soldiers suggests that, you know, the, the per capita of cost of the slave was extremely small. Um, um, and, in a strange way, that kind of struck me, um, uh, in, in part just because, you know, they're, they're causing massive suffering. Um, uh, tens of ten, hundreds of thousands of people are being uh, violently ripped away from homes and family. And, and, and um, because of the, the economy of that, because, you know, when the supply goes up, the demand's the same, the price goes down, and we have the price, and it's a, basically a pittance. Mm. Um, in, in a strange way, that 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 made the horror of that event, um, you know, all, all the more gratuitous um, mm. and and kind of obscene. So, you know, again, yeah, it's it's easy to be dry um, because it's it's a dry topic, and you are thinking about soldiers and 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 casualties and and victims as you know little numbers on the spreadsheet. But mm. I think that was a moment where I kind of had to pause and say, "Wow, you know, the 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 numbers." here actually, uh, in a strange way, only add horror to this incredibly kind of, um, you know, vile action that the Romans take as, as punishment um, uh, for, for, for this, you know, for people who they thought had insufficiently uh, supported them during the, during the war. Um, so, and, and of course, there are obviously many other elements when you, you know, confront, <laughs> confront other evidence that, that maybe gets you a little closer to that kind of human cost. But without question, there's massive suffering behind um, a, a lot of the numbers in this book. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that, that particular incident, because I think it really does, the way you described it, it really does kind of hit you in the face as far as, you know, we had so many slaves that we could just barely get rid of them, but we had to, you know, that that's kind of. And, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't pursue this, uh, this sort of line of inquiry, although I, there, I think this is, there are historians who are doing so. Mm-hmm. There, there is some crossover with what we know about um, uh, transatlantic African slavery, that, that mm-hmm. lots of large numbers of slaves are being bought extremely cheaply because mm-hmm. there's been a war, there's been some kind of displacement. Many of them are already sick, hurt, wounded, suffering. And so they're, they're, they're you know, sold for a pittance 
and and you know, that's one reason why the the you know there's so little um, kind of the, the callous treatment of slaves on the on the Middle Passage is in part because uh-huh. you know well if they if they make it across it I, I again I I think that is the same brutal dynamic um, and that's something because this wasn't the main focus of the book but I I think it was certainly um, you know, there is a book, I think, to be written on the kind of economy of of slavery and conquest mm-hmm. um, that would that would probably delve even more into those kinds of, of rather horrifying uh, statistics. Yeah. So apart from filling in the historical gaps, what, what do you hope readers will take away from this book? Well, I, I hope that if anything, it tries to situate um Roman imperialism in the kind of broader state system, the broader geopolitical system of the Mediterranean. Um, that was kind of the goal when I started the project. Um, and that was in part, and this is actually just kind of a, oftentimes a matter of necessity, but you know, most work on Roman imperialism just focuses on the Romans. <laughs> um, and that's oftentimes by, you know, again, you have to do it because you have to limit the topic. Um, uh, and also there's just, you know, matters of, of, you know, scholarly expertise. Um, and so I really wanted to situate the Romans, which admittedly are, is my area of scholarly expertise, um, but within the broader system that they're operating in. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it is, I think, easy sometimes to sort of say, well, you know, the Romans are these kind of um, you know, they're these ferocious imperialists and they're just going, you know, kind of picking off, um, victim after victim. And, you know, again, I, I don't want to downplay the sort of savagery or brutality of, of Roman imperialism, but I, it did seem that you can't appreciate Roman imperialism without appreciating the really quite extraordinary resources and capacities that the peer rivals uh, uh, have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the main, so there's the intervention that I hope the book would make. It was it was that, and that that we to understand Roman imperialism, we we have to understand the the tax system of Carthage, or the, the revenues of Carthage, or the conscription system of Macedonia, um, or, or or the the organization of Seleucid armies, um, because it actually gives us a better sense of the um, you know the the uh, geopolitical scenario in which the Romans are are operating in. Um, so that was really the main goal to, to tell a story of Roman imperialism, but alongside similar kind of synoptic stories of Carthaginian and Seleucid and Antigonid and, and Ptolemaic imperialism, exploitation, mobilization, um, since all of this is happening um, at the same time in the, in the third and second centuries BC. Do you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? Um, well, there's always a difficulty in getting it finished. <laughs> Um, um, uh, yeah, you know, one, if I, in some ways, the biggest difficulty was this, you know, clearly, if you're writing about Carthage and the Seleucids and the Antigonids and the Ptolemies, that, that grand goal that I had setting out, and I'd like to think maybe I've partially accomplished at some point, there are just limits that you have to place on yourself. Um, so I had, I had planned to have, at an early point, chapters on some of the kind of uh, lesser powers um, that are still important to our story. So there are, you know, whether it's Syracuse or um, the Adelaide Kingdom of Pergamon or, um, you know, even some city-states like Rhodes or Sparta um, that are that are still players. I'd initially sort of planned to include them, 
Um, and of course, just realized very early on that if I did that, you know, I, I never finished the book. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you, I think you could even keep spiraling out, um, you know, should I, should I talk more about the, the, you know, the Celts who are used as mercenaries or Ligurians or, or you know, Iberian population density? There's, you definitely can keep adding more to the story. Um, and that I think would be worthwhile, but at the same time, I also just had to, had to stop. So in some ways, the hard parts of the book were, were telling myself, you know, that's interesting, but if you go there, you'll never finish. And if you go here, you'll never finish. And, and kind of putting some constraints on myself that, um, you know, I, obviously as I, I can look back and regrets and say, Oh, you know, I wish I talked a little bit more about, um, you know, Roman, Roman finances during the Second Punic War, or, or talked more about, um, you know, uh, the interface between slave labor and military mobilization, which is an important and interesting topic, and, and yet ones where I just had to say, I, I got to cut bait because otherwise I'll, 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 you know, I can write three books, but that would ultimately be no book. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, questions for the future, maybe, maybe even not even for me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would actually hope that maybe one of the success, if, if it is a successful book, it, it is, it's because it prompts other people to say, well, why didn't you cover this? I should, I should, I should answer that question. Yeah. Um, what's your current writing project? So currently I am working on a um, monograph on the citizen army of the Roman Republic um, as a, as an institution. Um, and, and I, I guess we'd say this is related to sort of some of the interests in this book. Um, but, um, you know, certainly the fact that military service may be one of the prime ways in which a Roman citizen interacts with the kind of abstraction of the Roman state, um, and also the fact that the citizen army is so critical for, again, the really astonishing uh, uh, trajectory of Roman imperialism. Um, I kind of, you know, this sort of book, you know, looked at numbers, but I actually now want to actually think about institutions um, and, and how it functions as an army and, and also kind of the relationship between the army and the republic. Um, and so, you know, again, hopefully it'll answer some of those uh, 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 unanswered questions in the book or unaddressed questions in the book, but um, uh, it'll be much more of an institutional history rather than a, necessarily a, a kind of uh, quantitative history. Um, so that's the next project, although, um, uh, you know, still in, still in that earlier, earlier phase, I would, I would guess, um, research and kind of thinking and, and uh, less writing at the moment. Do you have a... Uh... Uh, presence on the web uh, website or social media where people can follow your thoughts. Um, yes, so I I put um, whatever documents I can under with, with, for copyright reasons, but I I try to post whatever I can on an, an academia.edu site, mm -hmm. um, and I post um, I, I have a a Twitter account that I is sort of my academic account. I don't I don't tweet about you know politics or, or, you know, pop music. It's it, it, when I tweet, it is about the Romans. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I tweet sparingly on that account as well. <laughs> and what do you want to share that with people? Sure. Um, I, um, I can provide you with the, the links. Um, okay. Let's see. So my academia.edu account is uh, at uh, academia.edu slash M Taylor. Mm -hmm. And that's spelled T-A-Y-L-O-R? Yes. So M. Taylor. 
Um, and then I also, my, my Twitter account is uh, at uh, Dr. Michael J. Taylor, except it's just T-A-Y-L um, okay. one. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Dr. Michael J. Uh, Taylor, tail, I guess. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Uh, Dr. Michael J. T-A-Y-L uh, one. Um, okay. On Twitter. Well, that's all the uh, questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? You know, I, um, you know, thank, I not really. I, th I think I, thanks for having me on. And um, uh, it was a real pleasure uh, talking about the book with you. Good. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, and my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want new technology, science, space history, and space books, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thank you for listening. Thank you.